Good morning, and welcome to another round of Round Robin Preacher at Imago Day, summer 2022. Uh, we're grateful for uh, Pastor Tony and uh, First Lady Kim, as I often call her, uh, as, as they have some time to rest and recoup and be with family, and so just continue to pray for them as they're on that sabbatical. So we're, we're going to be in, um, continuing our series in Luke, chapter 11, uh, verses 14 to 28. And um, as you guys are turning there, as you know, the housing market in the area is a little crazy these days. Uh, yeah, amen. Anyone who I know who's looking for a house right now, I just, I just want to give you a hug, man. I mean, it's, it's rough out there, y'all. I mean, you know, um, I remember a month or, or so ago, there was a house in North Raleigh. There was the, the news showed up that was, that was uh, going for about $300,000, and the line was around the corner because they were just trying to find a house that was within their price range. I mean, who knows? These people might have put the house on the market with crayon on the wall. Uh, didn't even vacuum the place. Broken toilet seats all, all over the place. But they got uh, offers that were fifty dollars to $70,000 more than the asking price that day. And so uh, <laughs> these days, if you make it through that crucible of just having your offer accepted, you're under contract, and now you have to have an inspection. So just recently, there was a young couple here at the church, and one of the growth groups I ever see, they were going through the inspection process, and we were praying for them. They were a little bit stressed out about it. Uh, all went well. But um, in, a lay, in layman's terms, if you're getting something expected, you need somebody who has a trained eye. Don't just go get the homie who built a treehouse for his kids. You need somebody who knows what they're talking about, somebody who's certified, Somebody who can walk through the house identifying things that will mess with the value of the home. Somebody who can look at the heating systems, the cooling systems, check out the foundation, understand if it's cracked or not. Uh, is there any water or sewage issues and all those kinds of things to make sure that um, you are buying what you're hoping to buy. The last time I got an inspection, I remember I was following the dude around the house to inspect him as he was doing his inspection. This, this man has been in the biggest business as long, longer than I've been alive. He was getting ready to retire. Uh, I mean, he was checking every doorknob, every light switch. He put this little thing in every outlet. You know how many outlets are in a house? I mean, I was bored, but he was, he was still at it. My man was going strong. And I'm glad he did because it's important to have an accurate assessment of the house you're going to buy. So you can buy with confidence and so that your lender can lend you money with confidence. Everyone has an accurate assessment of the property. And so in this text today, we have people who are making an assessment of Jesus. But they weren't accurate, as accurate as my inspector. They were actually inaccurate, and I'm so glad Jesus was there to correct or reassess their assessment. And so let's check out these first uh, seven verses together, verses 14 to 20. It says, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by the power, or by, or by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, uh, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their hearts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a divided kingdom, or divided household, falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For if you say that I cast out, uh, cast out demons by Beelzebul, 
If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, uh, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. (laughs) Yeah, that's good, right? And so we see this miracle in verse 14. And so this is a scene. There's a man who is mute. And just think about it. He has trouble expressing himself verbally. He's unable to, uh, to uh, articulate verbally the Lord's prayer that we studied last week. But Jesus steps in. He casted out the demon. The man spoke, and the people were amazed. And so this is one of the shortest miracle accounts in all the Gospels. Just one verse, that verse 14. And the brevity of the account gives us a clue uh, that the emphasis is not on the miracle itself, but it's on the responses or the assessments to the miracle. You guys see that? And so as you can see in verses 15 and 16, the skeptics begin to respond to what they saw. The first response is rejection in verse 15. The people, they were amazed by what they just saw. They knew that they just saw something supernatural, but their assessment was this. He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. I'm sure you guys are just dying to have an elongated explanation of who Beelzebul is, and so I'm glad to give you one. <laughs> so the name Beelzebub, with a B, uh, was a familiar name given to pagan deities, but uh, biblically speaking, Beelzebul is listed as one of the Canaanite gods. Uh, of the Philistines in Ekron. You can see that more of that in uh, 2 Kings chapter 1 if you're a, a Bible student in the house. So over time, Jewish people identified Beelzebul with an L as one of the arch demons of hell, or even as Satan himself. So in short, to say that Jesus was casting out demons by Beelzebul was to say that he was a tool of the devil. So since these people denied that Jesus was the Son of God... They had to try to find out some other explanation that, uh, for the reason why he was able to cast out demons. So the only thing they can, they can come up with was that he does it by the devil's own power. And to say it plainly, this is an improper assessment of the situation. And more importantly, it was blasphemous. So the second response is in verse 16. Uh, and the second response was basically a demand for more signs. And so the second group, they assessed the situation, and they tested him by saying, you know what, we need to see something else. We need to see something more from heaven, this sort of wait-and-see approach, uh, which was common in Scripture. And so um, throughout the Gospels, Jesus called the Pharisees an adulterous, sign-seeking generation. And this is not a good look, because I don't want Jesus to respond to me by calling me an a, a adulterous, sign-seeking generation, And so this is not what uh, they wanted to be called. But elsewhere, Jesus uh, consistently warned people about being enamored with the signs and wonders and not being enamored with the Savior himself. And so in all of this, Jesus knew that people, uh, they just wanted to be around what was happening. People didn't care about Jesus' miracles all the time. Uh, They were just trying to see, uh, or that they were testifying to the kingdom of God. They didn't care that the miracle-working man was the Son of God. They just had a bad case of FOMO, which for the people who are above 40 in the room, that's a fear of missing out. They wanted to be around what was going down. 
And so, in, in fact, the first story that, I, that came to mind as I was talking or thinking about this, uh, where God actually gave somebody a sign, it was the story of Gideon in chapters uh, 6 to 8 of uh, Judges. And so this is a fairly common biblical story, but I'll give you a little bit more background if you're, if you're new to the Bible. So Gideon uh, was called by God to free the Israelites from the nations around them, but Gideon wasn't sure he was up for the task. And so he came up with an idea or a plan to test God. But God was like, all right, Gideon, I see you. I'll, I'll play along. And so he said, I'm going to put on a fleece, God, at night. And then when I wake up, I want the fleece to be wet and then the ground around it to be dry. And then he woke up that morning and it happened. And then he's like, well, just to make sure, just to, just to make sure, God, you know, because, you know, he needed another sign. He's like, tonight, I'm gonna, I want the reverse so he woke up and it was so. The fleece was dry and the ground was wet. And so now he all of a sudden had confidence in God. So he gathered his army of 32,000 uh, people to wage world war against the Midianites. So Gideon got what he asked for, but God still tested his faith anyhow. You see that? God still wanted to test his faith because some of you guys know the story. Uh, you know that he had this massive army that was like 32,000, that God dwindled it down to 300 people. So the lesson is simple here. If God even gives you a sign, which God has given all of us signs, he still needs to have faith from you to participate in what he is doing. So an inappropriate assessment is to ask God for additional signs because an appropriate response is faith. In fact, to reject or to question God's ability to do miracles is not only to question Jesus, but it's also to question his skeptics too. Because it's even the skeptics are like, hey, we need another sign. Not a sign. They even saw it. And so we're seeing that God is able to do miracles, and they just wanted to have another sign. See, they're living in a sea of contradiction here. And so this kind of skepticism may be or seem less evil than outright antagonism but it's just as dangerous. Whether we deny Jesus altogether or dismiss him until we have more evidence, we do not trust him by faith. And that's what we need, to have faith in this God who we're reading about in the text today. So many of us rest behind this veil of indecision. And we think we're more pious by reserving judgment uh, and use uh, our skepticism to avoid making a real decision for Christ. But delaying a decision is making a decision because we have to trust Christ. We have to trust him living by faith. Make a proactive decision for Christ today. The Bible is clear. It says today, today is the day of salvation. We don't know if tomorrow is promised to us. We can't just wait in indecision Resting back, thinking that, okay, tomorrow, maybe he'll give me a sign that God exists. No, today is the day of salvation. So when we respond with skepticism, either rejecting or asking more signs, we're, we're, I'm, I'm basically just saying, hey, choose Christ today. No more smoke screens of indecision. You're carrying this weight and this guilt that is now Jesus's if you would give it to him. Stop carrying this weight around. If you've been searching for purpose, wondering what life is all about, taste and see that the Lord is good. There is joy. There's everlasting joy in, this, in Christ that you cannot imagine. There's a tomb in the Middle East 
that was once occupied. But now it is empty. There is a Savior who was laying there who rose again for our sins because he wanted to make your relationship right with the Heavenly Father if you trust him. Choose Christ today. We can't bear the temporary and even the eternal weight of our sin ourselves. We can give our sin and our skepticism to Jesus because he already did what was necessary on the cross. So follow Christ today. So now the skeptics have responded, and now Jesus gives his own response to their inaccurate assessment in verses 17 to 23. And so uh, in response to them, we know know Jesus gives his uh, iconic response, uh, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. So a person or a nation or government that is divided against itself, it will not stand. So if Satan was casting out demons uh, through Jesus, then it, like, it's like cutting off the branch you're sitting on. It's like pulling the rug out from your own feet. It's like biting the hands that feed you. I, you guys get what I'm saying. It was, it's just stupid. Like, it's like, why would you do that? I mean, uh, and so apparently there was other people who were casting out demons uh, among them as well. It seems to be their sons, as the text says. And so they didn't ascribe to them satanic power, but Jesus is like, well, if you didn't do it to them, you didn't show me that same love by assuming that I'm not casting out powers by Satan. And so, so, so what's going on here? And so, however, they didn't give Jesus, again, that same benefit of the doubt, because back in that culture, if you were casting out demons, it actually served as a confirmation that God was, was working through you. And so here we go. This is a poor assessment. And so these attacks on Jesus were illogical and they were inconsistent. But the same goes for every attempt to deny the work of God. Since God is our creator, we can't even reason him out of existence with using the, without using the minds that he gave us. Anytime we try to shake an angry fist at God, clenching the hand that he so marvelously made, we are trying to use what he gave us against him, using our own ability to logic ourselves against uh, the Lord. And now we see in verse 20, there's even more explanation by Jesus, Jesus given. He gives another explanation of his ability to cast out demons. He said it's by the finger of God. It's not by Beelzebul. It's not by anything else. It's by the very finger of God. And then immediately, he jumps on that kingdom train again. <laughs> Talking about the kingdom. We've seen this all throughout Luke. Anytime Jesus talks, a lot of time, there's going to be some kingdom implication. And so the most obvious explanation for the miracle is that Jesus was sent from God and is destroying the rule of Satan, including the, the demon that made that man mute. So God's kingdom has arrived because Jesus is there. This is an appropriate assessment. And so God's people had been waiting on the one. They had been waiting on the Messiah to save his people. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom is here. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. But their assessment was dead wrong. Jesus is not working by the power of Satan. He's working by the very finger of God. I just can't imagine and get over the fact that after they saw a sign done right before them, they asked for another one. May that not be true of us, that we demand activity from God to prove himself. God has nothing to prove to us. 
He's done all that's necessary. God created everything, and everything that he created testifies to his power. God revealed himself to us. He wrote uh, everything down in a book called the Bible that wonderfully weaves the story of creation, fall, redemption, new creation into a wonderful book. You know, and, and then with 35 authors, that features the most well-documented miracle of all time, the resurrection. And so what more does he have to prove? And, so, and then, uh, you know, we do this by asking for another, another miracle? How dare we do that? If I were God, I'd be sick of us. But the thing is, I'm not, and that's a good thing. Because I'd be that spiteful, like, <laughs> for real, guys? I mean, I, and I'd be saying the same thing to me. So I'm, I'm glad I'm not God, but, but the thing is, we have a Father who is loving, who is patient, who is okay with our questions, right? So we have a good, good Father that wants to give his children good gifts, and he's so kind and loving to us, and so he keeps on giving us more and more chances. As we fumble our way through life, the Lord Jesus continues to give us more opportunities to see how wonderful he is. So now Jesus offered them uh, an illustration to demonstrate that he did not co-opt the power of Satan to do his work. Jesus um, in this situation, embodied a different kingdom altogether as he always does. And so that's what he's talking about in verses 21 to 23. And those read that when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he, t- he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather uh, with uh, who, do, who does not gather with me scatters. So here's the answer key to this puzzle: the strong man, Satan; the stronger man, Jesus. The spoil are the riches that they got when they were in war. And so this illustration takes us back to chapter 10, verse 18, when Jesus said, "I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven." Because the moral of this story is that Jesus is overthrowing Satan and gathering a people for himself. So Jesus is continually pushing back the jurisdiction of Satan because the fight is fixed. The battle is over. And now we're just watching it play out. That's when somebody should say, like, amen. (laughs) And so an important part of Jesus' illustration is this idea of the spoil. So the question is, what is it? So Jesus seems to be referencing Isaiah chapter 49. And the people of God, they were taken into exile by surrounding nations. But God's servant fought to rescue his people. And so here we see that Jesus shifts the meaning from Israel now on to us. And he is a servant. He is now the stronger man. And today, it's important for us to remember that the greatest opponent to God's people is not any other nation or uh, political party or an ideology, but it's Satan who is on his last hurrah before he's cast into utter darkness forever. We have to remember this. This is a spiritual battle. And so, beloved, I'm so glad that we know the stronger one today. The, the, the adversary will come, and he seems strong, doesn't he? But there is one who is stronger, and he is pursuing us, gathering a people for himself, despite the fact that it seems like the kingdom of the adversary is spreading and getting stronger. We're victorious already. 
And so uh, here we are in this story. The people are, are there, uh, and if Christ, and if you're in Christ, you know, there, there might be some times where you need to tell Satan, because you're filled with the Spirit, hey, you have no more hold on me. You have no more stake in my life. I have allegiance to the stronger man now. I'm a new creation. And sometimes you got to speak to that temptation, don't you? When it's staring you in the face, when it comes back again and again, say, hey, it's a new day. I am transformed. You have no more hold on me. Walk in victory, believer. The, the victory is ours. So let's continue in verses 24 to 26. Uh, by offering more insight about the activity of these unclean spirits. It says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, uh, it, it says, I'll return to the house from which I came. And he enters, uh, and, and when he comes, he finds the house swept and put in order. And when it goes, and, uh, and then it goes and brings seven other spirits uh, more evil than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person was worse than the first. So at first glance, this is a little confusing, but this, is, this illustration, it really does cut to the quick as well. And the main point is, is stated negatively, but I'll state it positively, and it's this. Jesus protects those he gathers from demonic assault. Jesus protects those he gathers from demonic assault. And so Jesus starts off by telling of a departed spirit, and maybe this person had an interaction or encounter with Jesus, and the demonic spirit left. And like the man in verse 14, uh, he was healed, right? The demonic spirit looked for another place to dwell, but couldn't find a place that was suitable for that demonic spirit. And because of that, the spirit returned to the house or that person from which it came. And until it returned, a bit cleaned up. They had an encounter with Jesus. They, that encounter may have caused them to tidy up the place a little bit. They're acting more morally. They're, you know, or they just had some time free of a demonic spirit and oppression, so they're able to sort of clean things up a little bit. And so this, this is the thing, but just because the demon left doesn't mean that they necessarily filled that place with anything else. We can't sort of have a moral or self-determined sort of energy towards fixing ourselves up. We cannot do that. But for those who are not just healed, but sealed by the Holy Spirit, we actually have a new tenant who is living in us. You like that healed, sealed? Somebody better give me a, a contract with Humble Beast. I'm coming through. Walt Strick. So uh, anyway... Because of all of this, we see that there, there's something going on here. And there's a couple things I want us to note about, about this, uh, these verses real quick. First one is that our old demons will check in on us. Our old demons, they will check in on us. And sometimes you might feel it. Seasons where you have increased temptation, uh, being short-tempered, being unable to focus on the things of God, being able to, or not being able to live righteously as you want. And that old friend comes back, that demon, and stares you in the face and wonders if there's a place for it anymore. But for the Christian, the answer is absolutely not. Because light and darkness, demons and the Holy Spirit, cannot dwell in the same house or in the same person that old demon will come back. It'll check in on you. Be on your guard. 
The second thing is that we can't pull ourselves up <clears throat> by our own bootstraps. We can't superficially clean the house. Our house needs to be transformed if, if we only have this self-made attempt at reformation without the saving work of the Holy Spirit, we will end up worse off than we began. We fool ourselves into thinking, we're okay, you know, guarding our, you know, and then we cease guarding our weaknesses, and then those, uh, those weaknesses become vulnerable to attack. It's for the, for the person who's had a genuine salvific encounter. Not just healed, but transformed again. That's, the, that's a big point. I'm repeating myself, I know. Not just healed, but transformed and sealed by the Spirit. We cannot be interrogated by, er, indwelt er, 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 by a demon like that anymore. They might come and make all kinds of noise. They might come and then feel as if you cannot evade them, but you can by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have some new resources, believer, to fight all these things. And what's, what's going to happen is that the devil will make it seem like you are just, uh, you can only lay around and just receive this temptation and fall right into it. No, that's not what the Bible tells me. That's not what the, what the Holy Spirit has for you. The Lord Jesus has given us the ability to have victory. The house doesn't need to be swept. It needs to be transformed. And the new tenant needs to begin to stay there. And now on to our third observation. We need something to fill the gap. So when the demonic spirit left, there was uh, some reasonable, uh, reasonably good activity going on, but nothing took the place of that demonic reality that used to be there. And so that demonic, uh, that demon just occupied where it left. And so we need what Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. So hang on to the old school English because there's something here for you, I promise. He says this, there are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the heart uh, the, its love for the world. Uh, either one, uh, a demonstration of the world's vanity so that the heart may be prevailed upon simply to withdraw it, its regards for an object that is not worthy of it. Or two, by setting further another object, even God himself. So not just by just withdrawing, but uh, just even by putting God himself in that place. And he continues, as a more worthy of its attachment, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which shall, <laughs> which shall have uh, nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. So if you guys are still with me, here's a conclusion. For the constitution of our nature, the former method is altogether incomplete and ineffectual. So you, you just can't walk away from something and not put anything back in its place. It says, and the latter method will alone suffice for the rescue and recovery of the heart from the wrong affection that domineers it. I know that was affection. And as one uh, author put it, our hearts are love factories, and we are built to love, or even if it goes bad, idolize, unfortunately, something. We cannot simply decide ourselves that we're going to do, you know, walk away from that person or that thing that's unbiblical or destructive in our lives. We need to give ourselves to something greater in its place, hence the explosive power of a new affection. So let's look in on, on what happened at verses 27 and 28. Somebody finally gives a decent assessment of what happened with Jesus. 
Well, kind of. So as, here we go, verse 27. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and, and the breast at which you nursed. And he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And so finally someone gave a proper assessment, but Jesus had to recalibrate her zeal just a little bit. And so uh, as, all, you know, as all this was going down, I can just imagine this lady, as people were like doubting you know, Jesus, as people were asking for more signs, and she's just sitting there exploding like, Jesus is Lord! The kingdom is here! And then before she knew it, like words just started coming out of her mouth. You know, it just welled up inside of her. And, you know, Jesus, he's always looking for a teachable moment, always looking for some way to help people better understand what is going on. And so she was trying to honor Christ as best she knew how. But uh, now Jesus is going to help her out and tune her up a little bit. By, so look carefully this. Her statement was focused on Jesus' biological family. You guys see that? But what Jesus does is redirect everyone's attention to the kingdom that is spiritual, a spiritual family. This reminds me of the scene in Luke chapter 8, verses 20 and 21, uh, and it says, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But Jesus answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And this was interesting because what Jesus was doing is that he was insisting that the kingdom is not passed down biologically, but it's passed down through spiritual transformation. And so rather than, than Mary becoming an object of our praise, Mary should be an, exemplary, uh, an exemplar of faith. Because in the end, her most important relationship to Jesus is not mother to son, but sinner to Savior. So as we begin to wrap things up, as we round the bend, as we are looking at these assessments of Jesus and Jesus, re Jesus reassessing assessments, I have to ask you, what is your assessment of Jesus? Is Jesus despised in your heart? Is there some reason why you are why you just hate even the idea of considering Jesus in any sort of close way? Maybe you've been hurt by a Christian. Maybe the church has hurt you. And I know, I don't want to ignore those things. But the question remains, what is your assessment of the Son of God? Whose kingdom, were you to accept Him, would be yours. You, have, you would have an inheritance there that is powerful. What is your assessment? Is he just a guy who needs to prove himself to you? Are you waiting around for another miracle? Well, if, if I get one more, then maybe I'll, I'll, I'll jump on the bag. Don't allow yourself to exist in a place of indifference. Thinking that you're in a better place than the outright antagonist. Because at the end of the day, remember, verse 23 says very clearly, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Indifference is the same thing as being antagonistic towards a God at the end of this, this whole uh, kingdom reality because you will either be a part of the kingdom or not. You need to have faith in this miracle-working God. Have you been on the merry-go-round uh, with a vice for decades? 
Why can't I shake this thing? You know, I, I, I've been trying to do this, like self-help one, two, three thing that I read, and I got in Barnes and Noble, I got a new book and stuff like that. But you cannot replace that until you find something altogether greater than it. And there is nothing in this world that will be able to satisfy you. And the reality is, you're like, well, it, I mean, it has to be something of even a different kind to eternally satisfy us. Jesus will fill that void and is the only thing that can. And the joy that comes with following Christ. So for you, my prayer is that you've seen Jesus today and you'll respond. Make a decision today. What are you going to do? Today is the day of salvation. He's done all that's necessary for you to be a part of his family. And so the last answer is, you know, as we ask what your assessment is, you might say, well, Jesus is Lord. Is Jesus your Lord today? You, are, you belong to a new kingdom if he is. You are not um, uh, sitting around like a sitting duck waiting for the adversary to attack you anymore. You know, when, when this demon comes around, and by the way, be on your guard because it will come around. But, as I said before, you have new resources, Christian, to fight this thing. And so sometimes you have to uh, lean in on the Bible to rediscover the beauty of God's plan and how it is better than anything that you desire. And you have to reconvince yourselves because our hearts are prone to wonder that we have to, that, that there's nothing that you're tempted by that will satisfy you like Jesus. Full stop. Scripture will re remind you of this fact, but there's some times when Scripture reading needs to be accompanied by friends who know us, who love us, who can speak truth into our lives. When, we, when, we've, uh, when we're at a place where we're muzzling and not listening to the whisper of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we need friends who will call us out on things, letting us know that, hey, you are not living in step with the gospel that we proclaim together. And then also that there's times as well where we need to worship. <laughs> we have to tap into experiencing the love and the embrace of God. Yes, on Sundays, but I'm talking about as you're in your closet and you're struggling through sin in your pantry when you need to steal away and experience the, the love and embrace of God. Sometimes we need all three of these things because it's tough out there. The adversary is real, barking at us as if we don't have a choice. That's a lie. We have a new tenant in our hearts. We have a, a Savior who has now filled us with his Spirit, and now we have a choice, believer, to actually do otherwise. And so as we are thinking through all of this, as we're hearing of these assessments, I pray that your assessment of Jesus will be one that's appropriate for the Savior. I pray that as you think about who this Christ is, that you will see the one who is bringing a new kingdom that has no end. And in this kingdom, all of the temptations, all of the worries, all of the doubts that we struggle with right now will be no longer. And we can just rest in the arms of our Savior, who is the one whose kingdom is coming. In fact, it's here, reigning in the hearts of every believer. And we'll see it externally one day when that city falls down from the heavens. And then... It's over. It's a wrap. And we can just like be with Jesus forever. We can eat, drink, have the supper together, a, a, a feast 
for those who are my, for my foodies in the room, man, it's gonna it's gonna be nice. But until then, be steadfast in Christ. Allow the Holy Spirit to continue to work in you because we are not prey to this, these demons that used to haunt us anymore. Let me pray for us, Father. We're grateful that you've um, that you keep us, that you have not. Uh, abandon us, to, even though we trusted you. You haven't moved on to somebody else, to another project, God, after we uh, said that we're yours. But God, you are indwelling us, helping us to live righteously. God, forgive us when we don't live according to your plan today. You know that we're dust. And God, our hearts are, are fickle. And God, you're just so patient with us. So we thank you that you're God today and that I'm not. We thank you today that you are the one who's sent a Savior so we can actually see the kingdom and to see that the fact that it has come. God, and for those who are uh, prone to be a skeptic today, we ask that you would allow them to see Jesus perhaps for the first time today, rightly today, as Savior and Lord. God, I pray that you would remove uh, Doubts that have sources that are uh, sinful and broken. God, I know that those things are hurtful, but God, I pray that we would see you afresh. Make our assessment of you worthy of who you are. We pray all this in your name. Amen.